Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood, a frequent guest on our program, is our guest this week. John, of course, is the author of nine books, and some of which are, uh, I, I want to say hysterical fantasy, but it's historical fantasy novels. Uh, you've written uh, Forest Folk and Mountain Folk. Uh, tell us a little bit about the concept of a historical fantasy novel. Well, in the case of mine, which are set in early America, uh, Mountain Folk is set primarily during the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War period. Forest Folk is set in the early 1800s, so it includes the War of 1812, uh, the Trail of Tears, a variety of other events in early American history. So imagine, let's say, the Battle of Yorktown, 1781, and there's George Washington and his army and the French army, and they're camped around and they're besieging the city of York, and Cornwallis is there, and it's all historically accurate. And the British know the only way they can escape Yorktown, the only way they can escape disaster is to break the French blockade, which is all true, all history. Except the British plan to break to break the blockade involves a sea monster. That's okay. historical fantasy. Okay. So in my particular case, I don't actually change the events of history. I just provide some alternative fun explanations for what may be happening. So I have historical characters like Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and Sojourner Truth and Ichabod Crane. He's a real person, by the way. And then uh, I have some fantasy characters as well, dwarves and elves and monsters of various kinds. And you've also written some serious books, in, in, including a great book on Jim Martin and the rise of the North Carolina Republicans and our best foot forward and investment plan for North Carolina's economic. You've written a number of books. And of course, you can go online and find and out. Now, just because that. there's a sea monster in Mountain Folk doesn't mean it isn't a serious book. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty exciting stuff. Okay. So you say uh, right. we will we'll let that one fly. Uh, Let's well, talk it swims, really, but okay. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, artificial intelligence. I'm really worried about this because I don't think we've uh, are attacking this problem nearly as quickly as we need to because with artificial intelligence, the reporting of news and uh, the impact it might have on elections is mind-boggling to me. Well, um, this is why you are the host and I am just your deuteragonist hmm. because I didn't know you were my what? Deuteragonist. Okay. So what, now what is a deuteragonist? A, a deuteragonist is the person who is second in importance in a story. So the protagonist, you're the okay. protagonist of this okay. show. Right? Okay, that you're is, the hero and I'm just the sidekick. Okay. That okay. makes sense. And you're, you have brought up a really important issue, and I've been thinking about it, too. Uh, I just learned, for example, yesterday, I, I still write my syndicated newspaper column. I have about 40, 45 papers that run my column, and several of the papers are associated with a locally owned newspaper company, and they, were just, they just published an interview about how they are using artificial intelligence. So just to give you a specific, so people can kind of sink their teeth into this, um, this is a, a Again, a locally owned newspaper company is trying to provide good quality local journalism, but the revenue model is weaker than it used to be. So how do you do this? Well, they've got reporters out there covering 
cities and counties and local businesses and things like that. The reporters are out there reporting. They're in interviewing people. They're taking notes. They write up the notes and the quotes. Then they feed it into an artificial intelligence program that generates a news story. Now, they take a look at it. They make good. You know, obviously, the AI is not even remotely perfect. So they generate a news story based on the notes. They look it over. Then they send that to the editor who uses AI again to uh, come up with four or five different options for headlines and social media uh, uh, headers. And then, again, people choose from among these AI generated outcomes. So you've got AI assisted news coverage and AI assisted editing and headlining and things like that. Human beings are still in charge, but you're saving a lot of time now. In my opinion, and I was a newspaper reporter when I was a young person, and I I didn't just report. I'd have to go back to the office and write up the story and all that. This particular use of AI strikes me as is innovative and useful, and it saves time, and it allows these news outlets to actually produce local journalism that people can read and use. Because you know we're not asking the computer in this case to write a poem or write a great novel. It's just Here's what happened at the city council last night, and they voted on this contract. Um, it's pretty brass tack stuff. The most important thing that human beings are doing here is reporting the information, not necessarily writing it up as a news story. So when I read that, I was thinking, you know, that doesn't trouble me very much. I can see how that would be useful. But it doesn't take long for you to think about, okay, so this all relies on trust. The The reporters actually got the information and fed it in and and so the, all the AI is doing is generating content that people can read, but they're not making things up. It's based on facts that the reporters have gone out and reported. Well, who's to say that other people are going to do that that way? They could feed whatever they want to to AI. We are already seeing not just text generated by AI that just sort of um, swamps the social media feeds, just all of just an avalanche of nonsense. Okay. To mix my metaphors. But then we're also seeing the deep fake problem. Uh, AI is being good not just at text, but at drawing things, at creating images. You can instruct AI tools to make certain things look like they're real, even though they're not. Right now, that seems like it's impossible to fool people and they can figure out if it's deep fake. But I think we're on the cusp of it being very difficult to fake something uh, in a way that people can tell. In other words, they might be able to fake something and get away with it. So that part of AI on news, on politics, uh, strikes me as extremely dangerous. Uh, I'm not sure that you can use government regulation to prohibit it because there's just too many other useful applications of AI. And after all, you really can't control this at this point anyway. But I do think it's critically important for our federal state officials to be on top of this, to be prepared to rebut nonsense because the nonsense is there was not there's always nonsense done i mean we just saw the other day hamas claimed that israel had bombed a hospital and killed 500 people in gaza it was a bald-faced disgusting lie by a bunch of barbar barbarians okay and the news media ran with it for a while so you don't have to have ai to generate propaganda and fake news and manipulate people because I mean, that was dangerous. That could have led to people being killed in riots, that lie being, being, being transmitted. But at least there were human beings involved. They figured out, you know, before too long that the information was faulty. The Israelis 
presented real evidence that it was actually Islamic Jihad shooting a rocket and the rocket falling short that, that destroyed the parking lot of the hospital, but not really the hospital. So, th so there was a correction to that. So it's already a problem pre-AI, but AI is going to make this harder and harder to stamp out. So I'm concerned about it. I do not think that you can pass some bill and make this go away. It is a reality. And there are many applications in healthcare, in customer service, and even what I was talking about, local journalism, where AI will be a net positive. Well, the thing that bothers me is the duplication of voices. For example, they can duplicate uh, they could duplicate your voice and my voice, and they could have an interview program just as we're doing that sounds like Don Curtis is talking to John Hood. That worries me a great deal because how in the world can people discern that difference? I, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, that means that the channel that you're consuming something on, uh, that the credibility of that channel is going to be important. So if someone sends you a link and say, watch this, you can't, you'll never believe what Hood said. Of course, that's true. No one ever believes what I say. But someone could send that link. And if it's not to a reputable platform, then people are going to pretty quickly learn to discount it. Yeah, that's fake. And so it's okay. going to be it's going to be incumbent upon platforms, you know, social media platforms and websites and media outlets, radio, TV, et cetera. It's going to be incumbent upon platforms to be able to detect deep fakes and then for people to trust the platforms. John, let's uh, change the subject and uh, for the rest of this segment and talk a little bit about the federal deficit and the national debt high interest rates and the effect on the budget uh, too high interest rates, because all of a sudden when money is borrowed by the federal government, they're going to be paying higher interest rates. So that's going to compound trying to bring the budget to a, uh, a break even or, a, or a, uh, uh, any kind of, a, any kind of stability to the budget. So where are we going with the federal deficit and the national debt? Nowhere good. Nowhere good, because it's the kind of thing that people always claim they care about. And I see no evidence that either party really cares very much about the deficits. We we are running or just ran. I think I'm right about this, about a two trillion dollar federal budget deficit in a year in which there was not a war. We're not at war. We're not in recession. There was no natural disaster. There's no covid disaster uh, this year. And we ran a gigantic deficit. In other words, there's no excuse for it. And nobody cares about it. I, both I, parties I mean, seem to be happy with this. Well, that they, they I mean, they're not happy with the deficit, but they're, they're not planning to do anything. Yeah, I, I don't think it's fair to say they genuinely don't care, I guess. What I would say is they don't care enough because they simply want to complain that the other side is responsible. Yep. And the truth is that at this point, the deficits are so large and they're going to be so persistent that everybody's responsible. Um, it is not the case, for example, some progressives argue, well, this is just because our taxes are too low. Uh, we could raise taxes some. We probably will end up raising taxes or at least re easing, increasing revenue. For example, the idea of trying to collect more taxes that are owed, that sort of thing. There's going to be some way to try to raise the federal tax revenue higher. But re federal tax revenues as a share of GDP are about as high as they have ever been. They're way higher than average. The real story is that spending is even more out of whack with historical averages. 
and we're heading towards, I think I write in this, uh, by about the middle part of the century, federal spending is going to be close to 30% of GDP. There is zero chance, zero chance that we can have tax revenues at 30% of GDP. It's hard enough to get it much above 20% of GDP. So you can't solve the problem with taxes. You could, you could chip away at it. You could reduce it a little bit. But I mean, if you, if you raise taxes to ruinous levels against rich people, and of course, they just evade them anyway. But if you tried to raise taxes enough to close the deficits, it would, it would just be impossible and it would destroy economic enterprise in America. It's not going to happen. However, the conservatives are also blowing smoke when they claim that, you know, it's just about waste, fraud and abuse. I'm against waste, fraud and abuse. We've got to do something about it. But this is driven primarily by spending on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid and other entitlement programs. That's the that's most of where the money is going today. It will become even greater if you add interest payments because interest rates are higher. That dominates the federal budget. You can't balance the budget unless you do something about these entitlements. What are you going to do about it? I mean, again, raising revenue will not be sufficient. I think it's obvious that you're going to have to reduce benefits for people, at least people who are higher income people, and they're not going to like it. But what's the alternative? You're going to reduce the benefits for poor people? No, you're not. So this is where we are. If we had worked on this seriously 20 years ago, it would be a lot easier. And I heard, I wrote one of my books was about this very problem, published 20 more than 20 years ago. If we had taken action then on entitlements, on Social Security and Medicare, et cetera, it would have been painful, but not nearly as painful as it is going to be now. So when you're worried about inflation, which everybody is, you should understand the primary story here is the federal government refusing to balance the budget and printing too much money. Which John is Hood is our guest. On, John Hood is our guest uh, on Carolina Newsmakers. We have one final segment, and we're going to turn to the Ukraine situation and the situation in the Middle East involving Israel. We'll do that when we return, right after we take time out for these messages. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing? Or your daughter's first birthday party? You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. Start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> a heads up before something bad happens. You should not send that text. Uh-oh. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can reverse pre-diabetes and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. 
Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is our guest, and we've talked about all sorts of interesting things, including the redistricting that has been proposed on the state congressional districts. We've talked about uh, uh, the, uh, well, we've talked about a number of things, including artificial intelligence and other things. And so if you're just now joining us, you might want to hear a repeat of this broadcast, and we'll tell you how to do that later on in this segment. But right now, we want to turn to uh, uh, two very interesting situations in which there are a lot of different thoughts going on right now. First of all, the situation involving Israel and also how the uh, current views are in the country regarding additional support for the Ukraine-Russian war. And it is a war, regardless of what people might say. So, John, let's start with the situation in the Mideast involving Israel. It's very hard to explain because a lot of it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, I suppose. I mean, you would think that by now, people who live in the West Bank, Palestinians who live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, would recognize that the only way to live in those communities is in peace with Israel, uh, in with decent governments in these places, that provide basic public services that allow economic freedom to blossom instead of these just be you know perpetual refugee camps. Unfortunately, not enough Palestinians either believe that or are in a position to do anything about it because the West Bank is dominated by people who don't leaders who have no authority and no no legitimate authority and no real interest in peace and developing their their community. And Gaza is controlled by terrorists, by actual barbarians who like to kill children and rape women. That's what Hamas is. It's a bunch of thugs. So Israel at this point, in my view, has no choice but to uproot and destroy Hamas, which will be a difficult thing to do. It will be costly in lives and money. Uh, the Gazans uh, are, for the most part, not part of the story, but unfortunately, the, the Hamas uses them as human shields. I wish there was a way to move the large amount of the population out of Gaza into Egypt or some other country. Their argument is, well, if you do that, we'll never come back. My answer is, I'm not sure you can. I mean, this has gone on so long. There's never been any serious movement to do anything to solve the problem on the Palestinian side. So I think the only answer is to destroy Hamas. If that means that the population has to move out and a smaller population at some point moves back in, I guess that's the only answer at this point. I mean, the the various Muslim country, Muslim-led countries that purport to champion the Palestinian cause, are they willing to take the Palestinians in and give them places to live? Apparently not, because they like to use them as props. So this notion that you're going to have people stay in these what amounts to just refugee camps for generation after generation, it's just not a practical plan. And they're not going to throw Israel into the sea. It's not going to happen, despite the terrorists' pretensions. So it's very difficult. It is very sad. Israel has no choice but to utterly destroy Hamas. Anybody who claims to be associated with Hamas should be targeted. For years to come, if they, they claim to be associated with Hamas, the Israelis should try to figure out a way to assassinate them. There just isn't any alternative. If you if you watch the news coverage out of what happened and you can't draw that conclusion, I think you are 
un, unable to engage in moral reasoning. So uh, how, in your opinion, is uh, President Biden hand, handling this? And I think he's handled this- it pretty well. I mean, he, and unlike in the Ukraine case, where I think he has dithered and taken way too long to move the, the armaments that the Ukrainians need, uh, the president has never given a speech articulating the case for American involvement in the Ukrainian war. I wish he had. He still should. But he has done that for Israel. Just days after the attacks, he, he did a very good job of explaining why America's position is what it is and why Israel must be assisted to defeat Hamas, destroy Hamas. So I think he's done a pretty good job with Israel. So how is the court of public opinion with other nations regarding what our stance is and what Israel's stance is, and uh, how do they consider this as far as a uh, uh, how it involves them and what the, the outcome is going to be? The, the propaganda resources available to our enemies, and they are our enemies, Russia, China, Iran, and their allies, uh, their propaganda resources are significant, and they've been investing in them for years. There are people all through Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, who believe unmitigated lies and nonsense about America, about Israel, about Ukraine. Uh, in the short run, there's not a whole lot to be done about this. You just got to do the right thing and basically let victory and good governance in the long run be your message. But in the long run, we've also got to re-engage in the war of ideas, uh, broadcasting the truth to these places, calling out these these leaders and their their countries for lying about the United States, lying about our allies. Uh, so in the short run, Don, Israel knows that as they destroy Hamas, they will be attacked constantly, rhetorically and possibly worse, but that they will be called the villains. They know this. They're going to do it anyway, and they have to do it. But in the long run, we should take this much more seriously. Uh, America is engaged. We, we shouldn't be the world's policemen, be all over the world. I'm not in favor of that. America is engaged in a struggle with bad actors who want to change the way uh, this, the uh, laws of war, the laws of trade, that they want to control the flow of people and goods and ideas in ways that we do not. And uh, we need to call them out on. We need to, we be, we need to be the arsenal of freedom and order, which we have been in the past. We are serving right now in that capacity in the Middle East and in Ukraine. And we need to explain why, why that is in our interest, because it is America is better off in a world that is peaceful, populated by countries that respect each other's sovereignty and borders and let people travel and let people trade without impediment. America's better off in that world. Uh, We don't need to go out and impose our particular system of government all around the world. That's not in our interest and not worth it. It's not going to work, but we have interests and we need to express express them. We need to articulate them. We need to work with our allies. one could have all sorts of thoughts about military actions that the United States took after 9-11. I happen to think the Afghanistan war was correct, necessary, and we should never have left, for example. But whatever you think about American intervention, certainly that's different from America providing moral support, rhetorical support, and yes, military support 
arms and aid to those who are allied with us, who share our interests and values, and are fighting against the bad guys. How is this going to affect the uh, presidential election? Uh, it would appear that right now, uh, to me, and I'm sort of a non-political observer, that uh, Biden is is winning some support uh, with his position on Israel. Well, that's not what the polls suggest. And I think that's simply because we are so polarized now that uh, Biden is simply, he's an unpopular president. Trump was also an unpopular president. And it's hard to convince people once they've soured on somebody, it's hard to say, well, I should give them a second thought. Now, maybe that will happen for Biden on Israel. I don't know. But I think that he has been poorly served by his own statements, his own actions in the past. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan was the beginning of the slide of public support for him. I don't see how he gets it back entirely because that was such an unforced, colossal error, just unbelievably bad policy. Now, it happened to also be the Trump policy, <laughs> which is why this is a little more complicated than it might first appear. Um, but I think that if Biden and Trump are the nominees, obviously one of them will win. I don't think a no labels ticket is <laughs> likely to defeat them. One of them will win and most of the country will be disappointed because they want somebody else. They don't want to choose, have to choose between these two individuals. And so, I say that again, having issued some praise for Biden uh, in his handling of Israel. And, you know, he's more or less been directionally right on Ukraine. It's just he's just taken too long and moved too slowly and not explained our uh, America's interest there. That's the job of a president is to persuade. It is to rally people around the policy. He just hasn't done it on Ukraine. He did do it on Israel. Uh, in the chaos in the uh, U.S. House Speaker chaos matter, uh, will will the Republicans and the Democrats together continue to support the Ukrainian involvement? I think so. Uh, there are Republicans that the more populist Republicans that, for a variety of reasons, have soured on it or never supported it. Some of it, unfortunately, is just all tied back to Trump, 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 Trump. It's just. Well, he, the Ukrainians were involved in that impeachment, or whatever. I mean, it just has nothing to do with reality, but that's just where it is. Now, some of it is a genuine belief that Americans' interests don't really coincide with Ukraine's. That's mis I think they're mistaken, but at least there are people who genuinely believe that. But a lot of it is just straight political. Ha that having been said, there are plenty of Republicans who say things like, well, I'm not in favor of a black check for Ukraine. Who is? Or I got to ask some real questions, but when it comes right down to it, I think they will support uh, U.S. military assistance to Ukraine uh, because they're not fools. And they know that American interests will be severely harmed if Russia succeeds in conquering all or most of Ukraine and is then able to threaten the Baltic states, other places that are already NATO members. But this is extremely dangerous. We should nip that in the bud. I think people understand that there are a few wackos out there who do not. But I think most of the Democrats and Republicans in Congress understand that. And I think when it comes right down to it, they'll vote the right way. You've got about 30 seconds to tell me when the uh, redistricting will be finalized on the state level, which we discussed, by the way, in the very first segment of our program. Well, this the, the maps will be in place by the end of October. Uh, there will be candidate filing. 
uh, in December, I believe it is, uh, I assume there will be a legal challenge. I don't know that there will be time, as you alluded to, at least before the primary. Uh, there have been cases where the primaries have been delayed because of lit litigation. I, I somehow doubt that's going to happen here, but I'm not sure. I think we're going to have at least one cycle with these new maps. And their they're congressional and legislative maps are new. John Hood has been our guest. He, uh, as always, is uh, uh, being able to explain things uh, far deeper than my simple mind can do so, and we appreciate that. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast uh, and listen to the segments that you may have missed by joining the program late, then you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear all of those segments. Or if you'd like to share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do that as well. Uh, Jason Kong has produced our program. He promises me faithfully that he will have another interesting guest next week on this same group of stations all across North Carolina. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and we'll look forward to being with you again next week. Till next week, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.